Today's quote comes from Edward Innenfull, editor-in-chief of the British Vogue. Social media is fine, depending on how you use it. Hey y'all, I'm Paul Severs, interpreter with Great Parks of Hamilton County, and you are listening to Take It Outdoors, a podcast where you can enjoy the outdoors from the indoors. You might be wondering about the quote at the top, not something you would expect from a nature podcast, but in today's day and age, many people get their nature from social media. Case in point, chances are you found this podcast through social media, and I'm sure you liked and shared it, right? On today's episode, we are going to be discussing some of the nature-related viral posts that have circulated on social media lately. First, we will talk with Nikki Farrell, social media strategist for Great Parks, on how to protect yourself from erroneous information on social media, because let's be honest, there's a lot of it. And then we will take it outdoors with Tom to discuss specific things you might see floating around your Facebook page. So Nikki, thanks for joining us today on Take It Outdoors. Thank you for having me. So the first question, is everything on the internet true? Yes. <laughs> no, of course not. It's a great source of information, but the fact that anyone can post and it's a crowdsourcing kind of medium also means that anyone can post. So it means that a lot of the information may not be true. Right. And that's kind of why I picked that quote because, you know, I like that, like, yeah, social media is fine, but it is all depending on how you use it. It can be used right. for good, it can be used for evil. Or it can just be used to disseminate some really silly stuff. So what are the signs, if there are signs, that a post might be false or contain misinformation? I think part of the problem is that the sites that and the, and the people who want to post misinformation learn pretty quickly how to be convincing. So it changes. But there are a few things that you can look for that might help you if you're trying to to determine the authenticity of a post on social media, you want to ask yourself a few questions about the post and be skeptical. How outrageous is the information that's there? If it seems too much to be true, it could very well be. So really put a critical eye on the information that you're seeing before you share it. Look at the post and find out who wrote it. If it's hard to figure it out, if it's not somebody who's an expert in the field, then it could be false information as well. A lot of posts that we see on social media is something like my sister-in-law's son went into a field and died because he came in contact with this lethal plant that nobody's talking about. So that sounds outrageous, right? So if that's the case, look and see who it is. And if you know that person, or is it a story of somebody's friend's brother, or is it somebody giving firsthand information? Is that person showing you photos, if there are photos on the post of the injuries or any photos at all, does it match the source of the information? If it's somebody just posting a story, a personal story, you would expect it to be just a cell phone photo of an arm and not a really professional looking stock photo of a rash or something that you could search and find on Google. So I remember one time finding this post and I'm not really even sure what the post was about, but it seemed a little ridiculous and So I kind of kept clicking back until I found the source of the post and it was, it was a kind of a professional looking photo and that person had zero friends. There you go. And it's like, well, clearly this is just somebody that created this, but how they have zero friends and we're still able to make this go viral. That's beyond my understanding, but it was very clear. Okay. Yes. Obviously this is nothing that's true. If you can't find the author of the post, that's a really good indication that it's not true. But if you can try 
Another sign that the information might be bad is if you can't find that information anywhere else. So that leads me to the next question then, and what are ways that you can check the information? Because obviously, if you see it on Facebook, you can just Google search it. But I found that sometimes you might find a website and it turns out, well, they're using the same information that you had found on Facebook originally. So how do you know that, okay, this is real information and not just, well, they're using the same sources that I'm trying to check? Well, if the only other places that you can find it refer back to the same post that you found, then that's an indication that it might not be true. You can also look at the sources that are talking about that post. If it's a reputable news source, maybe even your local news or another source that you trust, then that's a good thing. But if it's if the website looks just as shady as the post did, and it's obvious that they're only using that post as their reference for that information, then you might have another case of a story going viral and lots of people talking about it, but it not having any truth. You can also ask a professional. There are local parks like us. We have professionals who know about the plants and the animals that are in our area. And we're always happy to answer questions about those through social media. I get questions on our Facebook messenger all the time. What is this plant? What is this animal? And I like to send emails out to all of our nature interpreters like Paul, who... We love him. Love getting those emails. those emails. (laughs) And that's not sarcasm. I really love those emails. I love to find stuff out. So I want to ask you what your favorite most outrageous post is. But first, I want to tell you mine. Okay. And this one, it might have even been last year that this one was kind of circulated. And I just, it cracks me up every time I see it. Um, And I haven't seen it for a while. Thankfully, I think it died. But maybe you saw it. It was about tilapia and how you should not eat tilapia. I don't think I've seen this one. Because it said, it had these bullet points and it said things like, this fish is boneless, has no skin and can't be overcooked. But the irony is that right next to it was a picture of a fish that clearly has bones (laughs) and scales. Um, And it's, you know, you can't find it in the wild. It's only harvested from fish farms. Um, And it says the algae and lake plant or replaced by GMO soy and corn. I don't even know what that means and then eating tilapia is worse than eating bacon or a hamburger and it's just like where and people were sharing this and it's clearly it's like okay the people that were sharing it's like you're intelligent right it's just you're clearly not paying attention they're not being critical of the post that's the most important thing is be critical of the things that you see that's so that funny. was that one just I it cracks me up. I love it. So do you have a favorite that you've seen? Because you've I mean you have a lot of experience in social media, even before Great Parks. That's right. You did a you've always kind of been in social media. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you've seen everything under the sun. So I can't even think of specific examples. The worst ones that I've seen, and so before I came to Great Parks, I worked in news uh, for a 10, 15 years in different avenues, but always with social media and web as a big part of my job. And one of the things that we saw a lot when I worked in TV newsrooms was people would see a post. Oh, there was one. There was one specific one that actually may I may have seen when I was here that they saw a post about starving horses. Pictures, really, the one really awful photo of a horse that looked like it was starving. It was thin and skinny. And they shared it and said that this horse farm The owner died and they have 35 horses on the farm that have been starving now for three weeks or something and somebody has to save these horses and won't you do something about it? 
and people share it. They feel really bad for these horses. They sent it to us at the TV station. I think in one day it was sent to us a dozen times by different people. And every single person we had to explain to them, okay, we clicked on the post. We looked into it. It was posted three years ago in Texas. And then I searched Google for that and the headline came up and it had the horses had only been there for like three days. And the one picture was not, didn't even match the, the story. And somebody picked them up already three years ago and everything's fine. And you can clearly see the date on the post when you share it, but nobody was paying attention. So that was something that, you know, it is, it's when you see those photos, it's really easy to just react quickly and share because nobody wants to see a, a starving horse or an abused horse is what they thought. But actually it was just an old sick horse that was dying of natural causes. Nobody wants to see that. So it's really easy to click share or comment on it or tag your friends in it who need to see it. But before you do that, it's, it's also really important to think critically about it and look at the details and try to figure out if it's something that's true or if you may be spreading misinformation as well. I feel like critical thinking, just kind of common sense are the two key phrases for something like this. Yeah, another thing that people do, they see a shocking photo like that and they share it without reading further down on the post. We talked already a little bit about, you know, how to tell if a link or a site is reputable. Um, Do you have any other information? It's also helpful to look for an about us section. Hopefully, it will tell you who's behind the website. If it doesn't tell you who's behind the website, that's another thing that you should be skeptical of. In websites that have good information that are run by experts and professionals in their fields will have nothing to hide and will put out, they want their names to be attached to their work. So they will put out their names, if they're authors, what books they've written, what degrees they have, what qualifications they have to talk about the the subjects that they're discussing. If there's the information or the articles on there should have sources. Sometimes it's like a bibliography at the end of the article, like you remember from high school research papers. Sometimes it's linked. Um, But there should be sources listed in the kind of stuff that we're talking about, if it's about nature research, stuff like that. Kind of sounds like, I mean, even, you know, like in college when you're trying to figure out, hey, is this book a reputable source? You're kind of doing the same things. You would you flip back to the bibliography and seeing, right. you know, what what are the references, or even read the acknowledgments. And a lot of times we'll acknowledge, oh, okay, well, those are very respected names that I do know. I might not know the author that well, right. but all of these acknowledgments I do know, and they are respected in their you know specific fields. And so that kind of gives you a clue of, okay, this is a reputable source. And really, I guess nothing's it's nothing's changed. Yeah, I mean, and. The thing that has changed is that now these authors that you may recognize their names because you have a biology degree and you've read a lot of their books, they have LinkedIn pages so the rest of us can see that they're reputable. So you can, if you aren't sure, you can search their name, look them up, see what what kind of network they have, what are they posting about on LinkedIn. If they have a LinkedIn profile with no friends, then that might give you a hint about what their professional life is like. Something you can do when you look at a website or a post is ask yourself what if, I mean, how does it look really? A a lot of the stuff that we, that turns out to be not true is unprofessional. Um, It has a tone that, a voice that is accusatory or um, dramatic or has misspellings. 
spelling errors, grammar uh, mistakes, photos that are not good, websites that have flashing neon colors and stuff like that. Reputable people who are putting information out there generally have institutions behind them that will make their website for them and that make their website look streamlined and professional. So that's a good indication of whether something's true or not. So sometimes you can kind of judge the book by the cover. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you can at least get a get one piece of it. All of these questions, no no single question is going to tell you whether or not the information that you are looking at is true or not. That's the difficult part. Some combination of these questions will help you determine whether the information is something that you can trust or not. And if all else fails, there's always Snopes. That's true. Right. Snopes is great. Actually, I do have some organizations that I pulled up that have information about this. There's places like Pointer, um, the Pointer Institute trains journalists, and they do a really good job because journalists, as I worked in news before, this is a big part of your education as a journalist is determining what's true and what's not. The Center for Media Literacy is also a great resource for that. But I've got a few links and I'll, I'll make sure that they're out there. Some of the listeners might be kind of questioning like, okay, why are we talking about this right now? Because typically when you talk about misinformation, we think more about just things in the daily news and, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, like you got to keep it fresh, you got to keep it active. And so a lot of stuff just gets kind of crammed in there that is it true or is it not? Like I see a lot of these posts regarding, you know, nature. And so the the whole reason I wanted to bring this up is sometimes those posts can be really damaging to to nature, or it's just something that, well, now you've created a fear and people might not want to go outside sure. in order their park because, oh, I just saw on the internet that this is there and I'm not taking my kids there. Right. Or it could be the opposite. You know, you, they might see something like, oh, you know, you, this is the, the, you know, there's obviously a lot of food posts and health posts and, oh, mm-hmm. this is the, the new superfood. And it's like, okay, yes, but there's a lot of things that might look just like that. Please get your information right before you start foraging in your backyard mm, or in right. your park, you know, things like that. Um, so that's really why I, I wanted to bring all of this up. So it kind of deals with any information, mm-hmm. but it, you know, it certainly also deals with just finding out what's true or not true about the nature in our parks and in our backyard. Well, I think there's something to be said about the impact that social media has on our environment. We, we know that it impacts our lives. We know that, psychologically, mentally, we're looking at our phones, teenagers, kids today, um, kids these days <laughs> are um, interacting mostly on with, through screens and, you know, more and more through screens as opposed to in person. But it also has an impact on our environment. We have, there are stories about beautiful places in our national parks that used to be hidden that are now overrun with tourists because people put the photo on Instagram they tag the location and all of the people who see the photo and think that it's beautiful want to go get their own selfie there. There are people who get hurt taking dangerous selfies. There was a bear that was just put down in Washington state because people would feed him and take selfies with him. And he became too familiar with humans and became a danger to the community. So it's important to think about when you're sharing a post or reading something online or tagging somebody in it. It's important to think more deeply about that post and how its impact may have ripples. You know, we, we debate that a lot, especially like among the interpreters of, you know, what level of experience 
do we want people to have and do we want to give people? I mean, I, I do my job because I experienced nature as a kid. It's not because I went to the library and read about them every day. Although that can be like your foot in the door, you know, it makes you want to go explore, but I spent time outside. And in fact, these are things that Tom and I talked about in the last podcast. You know, we spent time outside. We did pick up frogs and we did, you know, find crayfish and we did look for snakes and, and do all this other stuff. And there, it's kind of a fine line of, well, how much do you do? You do? How much experience do you want to give yourself before things start to deteriorate. And yeah, I mean, there's huge debates online now about geotagging and, you know, please don't geotag. All right. We've been talking about kind of a lot of negative stuff so far, but again, going back to the quote at the top was social media is fine depending on how you use it. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about the positive aspects of social media. I mean, there's plenty of negative and it's easy to talk about negative things, but you know what? I I want to be a positive person. Well, it is my job, so I don't want to talk anyone out of uh, having a social media strategist at Great Parks because I believe that, of course, it's very necessary. And what the social media that we use helps the way that we use it. I always want to try to educate people and also try to let them know about programs, which also educates them. So our social media page, if I want to give it a plug, our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts are great places um, to get good information that... I never post anything that I don't know is true or that I haven't had a nature interpreter look over for me. But another thing that happens on social media is it really brings people together and it shows them about places that they may not have seen. It also can inspire some really great movements. So one that happened recently that everyone has probably heard of except Paul because he's not on Facebook is the trash tag challenge. And this was a, a movement in around the spring where people started posting photos of themselves in front of uh, an area outside that was trashed with litter, and then an aftershot with them with all the trash bags of things that they picked up. This social media movement inspired people to go out and clean up places in their cities, not just parks. It was places where they knew people dump things, and it was places in Russia and in South America and everywhere, all over the world. People would post selfies with 20 trash bags and a clean beach behind them. So it was a really good way to harness social media to actually help the environment. Um, And there's a lot of that. So there's a lot of good that can be done too. Since that's stuff I I dig, I kind of got goosebumps talking about that one. It's good. (laughs) It it is cool how something like that can be started in some little town in nowhere. Right. And all of a sudden, I mean, I don't know where that one started, but it did. Saying, it was a little like, town in nowhere. I don't remember exactly where, but you know, and then it was all of a sudden, like, these countries all over the world, people are are doing this. Um, the cynic in me is like, okay, somebody though took a bunch of trash, dumped it out, <laughs> took a picture, and then picked it. Hopefully, picked it back up. But even or if they, they did maybe that, they could have like taken the clean picture first, and then. But that's the cynic. Even in if me. you know, even if but they did that, it took. They still helped right. this movement move along, right? Right. So. And and from that, like I, that's the kind of stuff that I dig, and you know, I love. Like when we get, we get some crazy stuff like, hey, can you ID this? And it's yes. like, you know, even for me, I've never seen that in nature. And it's, we're kind of like just crowdsourcing sightings, essentially. Exactly. And I love that. And then to be able to, it's like, well, I don't know anything about this. This is something new. And then I can go in and it kind of, it helps us as interpreters also just to keep tabs on what 
people are talking about. What what's the next thing that people want to know about, and we can tailor programs to that. You know, there's like we did coyote programs earlier this year. I was just thinking year, about that one, and those were really popular. We did three of them. We had a couple hundred people show up. You know, all together. We broadcast one of them on Facebook Live, which yeah. got a lot of response. So that was wonderful too. And part of that's because coyotes are so big on social, social media. media. You know, especially things like next door, mm-hmm. and all which that one I've just. I've steered clear of. I've heard a lot of stories about <laughs> next door, but it's also helpful to us at the same time just to say, hey, this is what people are talking about. Let's help get the facts out there. Right, right. One other thing that you want to look for when you see a post on social media is sometimes you'll notice in tiny little letters, it'll say sponsored post next to it. Be careful about those because a lot of ads are, they want people to look at them. So they try to make it look like everything else in your timeline. Well, speaking of that, um, yeah, Tom and I are going to head outdoors and we're going to kind of talk about some things that you see a lot, maybe in actually in viral posts or even just, I see things or used to see things I should say of, you know, people that were actually my friends that saying, oh, I saw this today or, oh, I went to the doctor and my son has not only poison ivy, but poison oak. And it's like, I know that's not true. And Tom and I are going to kind of discuss. Well, I want to know why. Um, I'm waiting well, in suspense. You'll have to listen to the, to the rest of it then. All right. I definitely will. Okay. Tom, I brought you to Shawnee Lookout for no specific reason other than you said you've never been on the Little Turtle Trail. That is correct. Yep. I'm, not, I'm a little ashamed to admit it, but you know I'm, not, I'm not so ashamed to the, to, to the point where I'm going to make... Uh, exaggerated claims <laughs> that I otherwise would. You know, you're kind of an East guy. We're an East guy. Yeah. This is as far west as you can get in the county, as far as southwest you can get basically in Ohio. Um, but this trail, it's I think it's around two miles long, has some awesome views of the Ohio River. There's some earthworks and mounds um, along the trail. It's just a really good trail. It hasn't taken me on the whole thing yet, but I'm thinking it's pretty cool. I might take my daughter here, seeing as how I am a West Sider now, Paul. You, that's true. I mean, I did. I said, is that a monarch? No, it's too flittery for a monarch. Is it a, uh, is it a question mark? Viceroy? Um, no. But today we are going to be talking about the things that kind of can get a little bit too big for its britches on social media and kind of bring things back down to reality. So the, the one, you know, just as, a, as an example, just yesterday, I was looking over my wife's shoulder as she was perusing Facebook, and I saw a picture, it was a map of part of the US, and it had dots where all of reported cases of flesh-eating bacteria had been. I've, I, yeah. this map had dots, like, all around the Florida Panhandle, across Louisiana and Mississippi, and into Texas, and up in the Northeast. And I'm just thinking, I'm pretty sure there's been quite a few cases. Don't get I was wrong. about to say, there's probably a little bit of truth to that to begin but with. But this was like basically stay out of the Gulf of Mexico and half of the eastern sea. Because you will get you will get the flesh. Right. And it was talking area. about though being like in the sand and stuff. And I think most people have been getting it from the water. Because the water's warmer. Yeah. That's, than what it, that's what I was about to say. From what I've heard is, you know, we've had a pretty hot summer. And with hot summers, bec- 
leads to more areas that bacteria can grow and things like that. So they're probably, you know, if you have a great big wound, you may not right. want to go swimming. Yeah, it was just it's... a little hyperbolic. Yes. Um, and the other thing is, so I did a little bit more research and I, there are numerous flesh eating bacterias and the one that's typically, or the one that can be deadly um, is actually one that's very rare. Most of the other mm. ones is, yeah, they're hospitalized, but it's, you know, they're treated and they're Good okay. course of antibiotics, you'll be all right. Yeah. So I just thought that was kind of funny well, that just yesterday is all of a sudden they see this new post that's kind of like... Just, I was, as I was it's like saying... Jaws, like, stay out of the water. Yeah. Like, hey, just mm. last week, uh, my mom went kayaking and she capsized, which is a common occurrence. And because of um, a lot of news reports about uh, you know, drowning, dry drowning, yeah, secondhand drowning, secondhand drowning. Yeah. She got a little worried about that, and it's like, yes, that is a thing that happens, but usually it coincides with coughing and nausea, and you don't, and you feel tired. And I think a lot of times it it starts with a near drowning event to begin with. Yeah. So, and I think I've heard news reports saying, you know, he jumped in the water he felt completely fine and next day he is deceased i don't think that's how it works you know I, exactly so i think there is a little bit of truth to it yeah. and then people you know the the stories get picked up and they get exaggerated and then people read the and then they feel like something's happened to them and then they they get worried about it and that, that's kind of what we're we're here to yeah. dispel a little and bit just, about nature versions of that right and just for the record I am not a doctor. I am, though. <laughs> I'm a doctor of really cool things. <laughs> okay. Um, Tom is not a medical doctor. I'm not any kind of doctor. So I was joking. I am not a doctor. So none of this is medical advice, just for the record. Um, so. I was going to say Freakonomics. A I'm doctor a doctor of, of Freakonomics. That's a good podcast to listen to. It was. It is a good one. But So I want to start with... Now these aren't always like viral posts, but I kind of there's two categories. You have like the viral posts that just typically it's just some random person makes up and just they get a lot of clicks. And then you also have things that are just kind of old wives tales that are persisted through individuals posts that just keep getting shared amongst friends. So this first one that I want to start with is kind of this the latter. You know, it's old wives tales if you can call it that. They're Bigfoot. Just, that just kind of you just see them in friends' posts, and when I see it, it just it it just you know I, I just want to respond SMH, you know, shaking my head. That's that's a whole other podcast of cryptozoology that <laughs> we, we need to do. But I'm talking about poison ivy, poison oak, my best friend, and poison sumac. Can you believe a poll that I got all three at the same time? No, I did. I I swear. <laughs> It happened. I don't believe it. I got two on, I got poison ivy on this knee, poison hook on this knee, and then poison hemlock all over my face. Poison sumac. Poison sumac. No. So, you see the posts where somebody says, I took my kid, sometimes even to the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, your kid not only has poison ivy, they also have poison oak. Yeah, as I was about to say, that's what happened to me. No. Number one. Poison oak isn't found in Ohio. I don't believe it for a second, Paul. Note sarcasm here, folks, on the part of Tom. <laughs> so poison oak's not found in Ohio. 
poison sumac, you can find it in Ohio, but it's only in really swampy and boggy areas, which are not common and certainly not common in, in Hamilton County. Yeah. Um, but then even if you were there, you'd have to go like into the swamp and bog to get this on you. You would have other things other than poison sumac on you. Probably, yes. So the second thing though is that all three of those are in the same genus. I'm about to use a Latin term. Do you Killing know me, Paul. Do you know it? I do not. What is it? Toxicodendron. So you have Toxicodendron radicans, and that's poison ivy. And that, absolutely, we have in Hamilton County. It's, it's, it's everywhere. everywhere. Right. But all three of those, the chemical that causes your skin to react is called urushiol. I do know that one. And it's an oil, so it's not like, oh, the poison ivy's dead, you can't get it. No, you can because it's just, it's an oil. And that it's oil lasts in does. everywhere. So, it, you know, on those news reports, if they say, you know, if you've got that Eurosol on your shovel from shoveling and you keep it in your shed for 30 years and you get that, you could still have that oil on it. So that is a true, that's a true thing right. that they do. And it's talk a about. very thick oil. So yeah. it, it sticks on you, um, which is why if you do think you, you were in contact with poison ivy and you got that oil on you, you want to wash with soap and cold water. Like uh, dish soap. Yeah, dish soap, right. Dish to soap. get that, those that are designed to get rid of oils. And you want to do it in cold water. If you do it in hot water, that's going to open up your pores and a better chance that oil getting into your skin. So if it's cold water, it's going to close those pores and less area for the, the oils to get in. Um, but being that all three of those plants have the same chemical, you can't tell a difference. You can't tell a difference. And I think typically probably what happens is a kid got into a lot of poison ivy. The more oil you get, the more your skin will react. And so he got, you know, giant rashes and all of a sudden, oh, that can't be poison ivy. That must be poison oak. That's what happened to me. No. That's exactly what happened to me in fifth grade. So, I, hello. hello. How are you? Good. Good. Uh, yeah, in fifth grade, I must have went into the forest and got completely covered and my face had sw swollen. Uh, my mom said I looked like Hey Arnold from Arnold from that cartoon in the 90s, uh, like because I looked like I had a football head, and uh, my whole body was just a disaster. So we went to the doctors, and sure enough, you've got you've got poison oak, you've got poison ivy, you've got. The doctor actually said all three. Yeah, uh, I, I can't. I mean, I was in fifth grade. It was a while back, but I because sure. because then ever since then, my mom has because that's what the doctor said. She's been worried about poison oak and things. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, and it was actually kind of funny because I went back to school. It had mostly gone down, but I still had a big red face. And there was this girl that sat next to me, and she thought I had a crush on her. And she was making fun of me for like the rest of the year because she was like, When I asked you if you had a crush on me, you blushed. And I was like, It was poison ivy. <laughs> Likely story. <laughs> Poor Tom. Yeah. So, bottom line is, especially in Hamilton County, it's gonna be poison ivy. If it's a really bad reaction, that just means you got a whole lot of it. Yeah, and it is something um, to worry, like it is something to be aware, aware of. of. And even, for example, I got it last year, and I got it from my dog. He runs in our um, backyard, and we have a lot of poison ivy in our backyard. He runs through it, so he likes to sleep at the end of my bed at night, so, you know, he's gonna be crawling through my leg, pushing, you know, and he likes to snuggle, snuggle right up, and, Couple days later, I have 
a rash that goes all the way down my legs. So. I think that happens to a lot of people. They're like, I never was outside. I never got it. It's like, well, do you have a dog? Because, I mean, they can transfer it. It's all over their fur. Yeah. Which, that fur actually helps them. They don't actually react because oftentimes it doesn't get to their skin. So it's on their fur and it rubs on you or it might rub on the couch and then you sit on the couch. Yep. And so... So that is a true... Again, that's something that is kind of... There's a lot of truth in these news stories. Um, that, that sometimes they just get exaggerated a little. Right. Which kind of brings me to what I wanted to talk about. Because uh, Paul was, you know, we were kind of talking about ideas for this. Well, Paul was talking about ideas for this podcast, seeing as always the brains be- no, behind most of it. That's not true. And one of the subjects was um, the kissing bugs, because that's been on the news a lot lately, is kissing bugs uh, passing Chagas disease. And uh, I listened to a really neat radio. I remember this radio. Um, it was something on NPR. I can't remember. It might have been Science Friday. Uh, there was in uh, 1899, there was the kissing bug scare of North America. And this was actually 10 years before the disease, the Chagas disease, had even been described. And what? Oh, hold on. Can I ex- let's explain what kissing bug is and what Chagas disease No, I'll just do no. this entire thing. Okay, and it's, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> so the, the kissing bug is a true bug. And so that means it kind of its wings form an X on its back. And that's a way to tell if it's a, a true bug. We and it's got it, a big old rostrum. Yeah. Rawr. Yeah, so a big... Big cone like trunk. It's got like a mosquito nose, kind of. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's 11 species of of bugs that can carry Chagas disease. I believe only one has been found in Ohio. Um, and we'll get more into what, you know, if it's anything to actually worry about. But so it's an insect that can carry a disease, disease that, called Chagas disease. Yeah, and it makes you tired. It makes you, you swell. And I think you can get a chronic version where it affects your heart. It can affect you even years later. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, the interesting thing is, as I was saying, um, yeah, so Paul said that it was, you know, one, there's one in Ohio. Most of the cases, if it, it, usually it's South America is where you'll get Chagas disease and where most of the kissing bugs are. There are more reports in the southern states, so Texas, uh, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia. Once you get up into the northern states, the chances of even seeing kissing bugs drop dramatically. So even once... in Ohio, the chances of seeing them are because typically we're just not in the places where that, that they even exist. Yeah. So what's really interesting is that in 1899, there's hundreds of stories um washington post new york times the kissing bug epidemic of 1899 all northern new york uh pennsylvania ohio just a bunch of like and and it did go down into the southern states too which is really unusual because again they're pretty raw and what's interesting is uh from so so there was a story about this and then scientists actually looked into it and what they discovered is around that time of the year the weather was about three degrees Celsius hotter than it is. Like they, they had a really hot year that year. So there is a small chance that, yes, kissing bugs may have made their way up into the more northern states and they may have, you know, maybe um, infected one or two people and they get a little bit of swelling and they start feeling sick. Somehow, this turned into people getting their hands swollen to ten times their original size. There was one man who reported that he got the head of a rat and he grew fangs. Uh, And his doctor, 
supposedly his doctor agreed with this. They didn't find the bug, but that's pretty sure what's happened to him. Um, people uh, would use the kissing bug as a defense in, in court. So they say, I got bit by a kissing bug. I was delirious. So that's why I stole from this bank because I was under the effect of the kissing Women were wearing kissing bug jewelry. Like it became huge Phenomenon. for about a year and part of it was it was just hundreds of these crazy stories and uh and then after you know uh after the early 1900s it just kind of disappeared and and it's kind of funny that we're almost seeing a similar thing happening like a hundred years later See, that was my thought that i don't know if it's like makes me feel better or makes me feel worse that oh okay well this has happened before but you think we would at some point learn our lesson. Yeah. It's like you yep. don't need social media necessarily for these things to go viral. So what happens is I guess the kissing bug will attack you. Will attack you. See, here I go. I'm sounding like it now. The, yeah. The, they're evil. And I, I think they're like 12 feet long. Oh, too, yeah. Aren't they? Um, apparently they were six inches long. Oh. According to these <laughs> stories. Um, In reality, they're, they're a good sized bug. But we're talking like, like an, an inch. inch. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So what they do is when you're sleeping they may suck blood from your lips and how you actually get the disease right is that they actually defecate and then if you have an open wound that feces will go in your wound and that's how you get sick right. so i think what happened in again in 1899 is what happened in ohio maybe what like three or four years ago where maybe one person got sick and then that was released to the public all of a sudden, we have to worry about the kissing bug wave. Well, and you see, you see articles that talk about kissing bug that carries deadly disease found in Ohio. Well, what's your first thought? Like, oh my gosh, I need to know what this is. I'm, I'm in danger of getting bit and dying. And that's just not the case. Number one, again, there's only the one species that's been seen in Ohio. And they typically hang out in much deeper woods around... Um, you know, animal dens like raccoons and things like that. So, like, unless you're hanging out around an animal or a raccoon in the forest, you know, nest. I guess you, for lack of a. And another term, problem is we have a lot of bugs that kind of resemble kissing bugs. A lot bugs. of bugs that look like. So that. Yes. what happens is pe there's all of a sudden a lot more reports of kissing bugs because they see um, like box elder bugs and uh, milkweed bugs and, and leaf-footed bugs, shield bugs. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the other thing is. That's part of the problem is with the brown marmorated stink bugs, the invasive stink bug, people see those. And there are similar markings. They're a different shape, but they're similar markings. And so we have this explosion of stink bugs that can be possibly confused for kissing bugs. And So poison ivy, yes, be careful. Yeah. Kissing bugs, probably don't need to lose sleep over. Right, because, here's, cause, yeah, the first thing is you have to find one. Second thing is you have to get bit by one. Well, the second thing is the one you find, it has to be infected or carry that bacteria in the first place, which is rare also up here. Then it has to bite you and then it has to poop on you. And then you have to get that poop that has the bacteria into your body. And I think part so of that's the, like five steps. Yeah. And that has to occur. Part, I think and, part of the problem is that just sounds so gross. Was that a train? It was a train. We found our train. Nine, nine <laughs> for nine. <laughs> But like it, it sounds so gross that I think it implants itself in your head. Well, like, absolutely. Like, well, just the, the idea of a kissing bug. Yeah. I mean, it's if it was like oh the, if it had its Latin name, Latin it's scientific name, name, right? But 
starts with a T. I don't remember it, but I don't either. Um, you know, then it might like, but you hear like kissing bug and some exotic Chagas disease from South America. Slowly yeah, making its, its way. Like clickbait all the way, you know. I did want to talk a little bit about um, brown recluse and oh, black widows. So, yep. yes, those are spiders that you can find in Hamilton County. Mm -hmm. um, now, when I say find, I mean that, yes, they are here. So black widows typically are have hot spots. So it's not like, oh, yeah, I have one in my house. Now, if you have them, there's probably a, a number of them there, or you have none at all. Um, but like most spiders, they're pretty docile. They, they're not just going to crawl on you and bite you. Um, and they also hang out in spots that you're probably not hanging out. And that's the same with brown recluse. It's called recluse for a reason. So typically when people do get bit, it's your boots were sitting in your basement for a long time. You put your foot in, it had nowhere to go, so it bit. I feel like the shed is Ohio's most dangerous <laughs> location because you've got your shawl on the... On your climbing up the side of it, yeah. Uh, on your poison, uh, you got poison. You've got oh, your yeah, recluse on your shovel. On right, your shovel, like you you, you've got um, recluses in your boots. <laughs> you, you've got uh, black widows in the corner. <laughs> uh, but I mean, again, it's not like if you if you, if you, you check about. if you check your boots, if you have a good eye on you, yeah, it's something to be right. aware of. But it's not into you don't have to bug spray your entire shed, right? But so. no, no, absolutely not. But have you ever image searched brown recluse bite? Yes. Okay. So for the listeners out there, it's not for the squeamish. But if you image search recluse bite, what you're going to find are a lot of typically Horrific images. hands with a lot of necrosis mm -hmm. and giant just chunks taken out of their skin. And while I'm not going to say that was not a recluse bite or a black widow bite, what I will say is that's most likely somebody who was bitten, did nothing about it, thought, oh, I don't need to do anything about it, let it go, and then that bite got infected. So what you're seeing is not caused by the bite itself or the venom, but it's caused by an infection of somebody who did not properly care for that bite. So if you are bitten, the far majority of bites are medically insignificant, but if you are bitten, you do want to go to a doctor and say, hey, I was bitten by a brown recluse or I was bitten by a black widow. Um, That's a good idea to keep the spider keep so it can Keep the spider, at least get a picture of it. Um, we found a Mediterranean brown recluse. It was identified by... Mediterranean? Ohio. Yeah, the, there's two species of brown recluse. Yeah. Uh, there's normal whatever is brown recluse, and then there's, a, I guess it's from, uh, I guess it's from Europe. It's from Southern Europe. Yeah, a Mediterranean recluse. Really interesting. And there's another one that I found in my house once. Um, the long-legged sack spider. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yep. that one is kind of uncanny likeness to a recluse. And it has and, some big old scary jaws too, yeah, right? Yeah, and I spent a lot of time making sure that it was not a recluse. But there's two, two big signs. One was I found it up by the ceiling towards evening, and that's the nature of the long-legged sack spiders they'll go up towards either the top of your wall or on the ceiling and, i found i did find one on my bathroom floor though. well they will be but i'm just saying that's one clue recluse you typically don't just find out and about again they'd be maybe behind the toilet or something right. right they're gonna find somewhere where they can be reclusive um but the best way and this is the best way to identify any spider is take a picture of it 
of its face, so, so from the front, you know, facing the front of it, and take that picture with a flash. And what you're going to get is eye shine. And then you can see the pattern of those eyes, and you can just image search spider eye shine, and you'll see really cool diagrams of different eye patterns, and that will help you. So if it is a brown recluse, it's going to have three sets of two eyes, so six eyes total. And that's kind of a rare, you typically don't see just six eyes like that on a spider. So it's going to have, like I said, you know, two spots, two spots, two spots as, as far as their eyes go. Um, but if you can get a clean shot with that eye shine, that's a quick way to say, nope, not a brown recluse me or and, anything else. Me and Stephanie thought uh, we found a uh, Black Widow when we were fixing the display. Uh, we pulled the display open. There was a thing that just like a Black Widow. And we, ah, Black Widow, both of us ran out of the nature center. We hot ourselves. It was a, an overreaction. We, we drank some tea. We had a couple of biscuits, you know, <laughs> calmed down. We went back in again. And we looked at it, um, didn't know there was a thing that existed. False black widows. False widows, widows yeah. Yep, false those black widows. Those are everywhere. Yeah. I see those everywhere. I've I've had a number of people bring them in and say, is this, you know, I think I found a black widow. And no, it was a brown widow. Um, I've only seen black widows once out in the wild. Black widows? Yeah. I saw them once out in the wild and I was pretty excited. It's pretty awesome. I mean, they're really pretty spiders. They are very pretty spiders. So, yeah, the, you know, we do hear a lot of things on Facebook and we hear a lot of things on, you know, random websites and things. Um, but it turns out every now and again, there are some reputable um, publications that n need to be looked at. Right, Paul? Absolutely. And you know what? Paul was talking to me about this and I was like, ah, whatever. And he was like, actually, it was uh, it was from the Ohio State. Right. So, yeah. So just. Um this was a little bit earlier this summer. You probably saw it. Um, it was, you know, the, some news agencies sent it out. It went around, you know, the different social media channels. Um, but there's an article about two different plants, wild parsnip and poison hemlock. And the reason these were coming out now is because it was, because it had been such a wet spring, um, some researchers were worried that these two plants could really be in great abundance this year. And they, they have been. I haven't seen a whole lot of I've wild parsnip. I, parsnip is one you're not going to come across as often. But um, my wife, I was talking to her about it, and she's like, help me to identify poison hemlock. And we're driving down the highway. I'm like, see that like... clump with the white flowers? <laughs> That's it. See that clump yeah. over there? There was poison hemlock like crazy. And the issue with, with these two is, one, yes, they were more abundant because it was wet. But they also like kind of disturbed areas. So places like alongside highways or next to your shed, again, um, you know, just in your backyard, they might start growing because those are, you know, even if it's kept, that's still a disturbed area where they can really thrive. Um, and yeah, the source of this, because, you know, we talked to Nikki already about looking at the source, is it a reputable source? And the source of this was from a man named Joe Boggs, who works for Ohio State University Extension. and. He is a very reputable source. So if he's worried about it or said, hey, be aware of this, it's something that I'm certainly going to be aware of. And here's why. So we'll start with ball parsnip. Um, that is a flower. And just do an image search to, to, you know, to know what it looks like. Uh, but wild parsnip, it's an interesting one that, you know, it's again, if you get the you know, juices on you, the juices themselves are not going to cause a reaction. 
So it's not like poison ivy. It's not going to cause a reaction. The issue though is it more or less makes your skin completely susceptible to sunshine. And so, so kind of like me every day. Well, yeah, but even worse. <laughs> so if you were to get SPF this, SPF 50, say on your arm, this chemical, you know, from the wild person upon your arm, and then you were to go in the sun, you would have a very high chance of getting third degree burns from that sun because your skin has no protection against the, the sun. But you rays. have to, in order to get it though, you do have to like, like how do you get these juices on you? So like say you're working in your yard and you're weeding and you don't realize that you're pulling wild parsnip and you're you know crushing the leaves or maybe breaking the stems that you're going to get on you. Um, if you're hiking and you hike through a patch of it and... Is it like you know, poison ivy or the juices? Yeah, then, then it is like poison ivy in the sense of these, you know, you would crush part of the plant and those juices or those chemicals are transferred to your skin. It's not like poison ivy in the sense that those chemicals are not going to cause the reaction. The reaction would be once you're in the sun, you're going to get third degree burns. So if you know you get it on you, stay out of the sun and you're going to be okay. And then to be honest, I mean, if you're hiking, I always recommend wearing long pants. Right. And, you know, boots that go up to the ankle. And again, I mean, Ohio's a, yes, there's these things that we should be aware of. But, I mean, it's not like we're going through the Amazon rainforest having to deal with right. all of Exactly. <laughs> you know... Long pair, long pants, some bug spray, and you and you're pretty good to go. But here is kind of another cool little side effect of wild parsnip. Is so the chemicals that it has are called sorolins, and sorolins can also cause the skin, the pigment cells, to produce more melanin than what is genetically possible for it to produce. Oh, okay. So when you get these chemicals on you, if you stay out of the sun and if you don't burn. What you might end up finding are dark patches because your skin is producing so much more melanin. Hmm. And there's no like pain or anything. There's no necessarily negative effects that go along with it. Um, but they, they can our, last for quite a while. Are researchers looking into that kind of stuff? Well, and... it is. Actually, there are four people that have um, different disorders where their skin cannot produce melanin. Um, this is one drug that they will, will take or, or, you know, it's... Um, I don't know if it's the actual just the sore lens or if it's like a synthetic version. A synthetic version, um, but they have used these chemicals to help um, people produce more melanin that can't produce enough. That's neat. All right, so wild parsnip again. I, I barely, I like, I, I'm pretty sure I've said, but again, I just, it's not really something that's on my radar. So it's kind of interesting that it's when Paul was talking about. I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't know about that. I. <laughs> yeah. And again, the issue is uh, if you get it on you and you're in the sun. Yeah. Third degree burns are not what anybody wants now, to do. Now, poison deal. hemlock, on the other hand. That one is, is definitely one that if it was in my yard, I would definitely be worried about my kids back there, and I would get rid of it ASAP. Um, that is one. It's kind of made famous because that's how they um, killed Socrates. They made him drink poison hemlock, and that killed him. So if you were to ingest poison hemlock, it can be deadly. Um, typically, you know, the issue with kids is if they... You know, it's these long kind of reed-like stems. And so if they and break they, it and they, like, think it's playing like a flute or something. They look a little bit like baby's breath, right? So Similar. It's in the, the carrot family. Yeah. Um, so if you can picture, you know, like the carrot leaves and the, the flowers and all that. Yeah, it's very similar. It's also very similar to Queen Anne's Lace, which yeah. is very common here. Um, so it's just one of those things, if you're not sure what it is, just 
take the time to truly identify. Well, I'm just saying those are little you... white flowers that look pretty, so they're right. easy and so to. So kids might want to pick them and things, right? Now, um, so one way to identify the t- queen uh, queen's own lace isn't coming out for a while, right? Right. So their bloom times are a little different. So, in fact, really, at this point, you know, this um, later in the summer where we are, most poison hemlock is done blooming. Yes, but so if it, even it, but if Queen it's Anne's September, is now blooming. if it's September and you're seeing, the, it's probably Queen Anne's lace. Right. You probably don't have to worry about right, it. Right, the blooms. No. I mean, it could still be out there. It's just not blooming anymore. Yeah. Um, but even if you don't ingest it, just getting the chemicals on your skin can create some pretty bad rashes. Um, so if you are, you know, weed whacking it, I mean, this can go to a, quite a few feet tall. I mean, taller than yeah. we are. Um, but it will also start small, and so if it's just a weed in your yard that you weed whack, and you get some of those chemicals that are thrown on your skin, it could cause a, a rash. So those are things that you you don't want to mess with. You, you definitely want to get rid of those as soon as you can. And if, by you getting rid of them, that decreases the chances of it continuing to spread because it is invasive. It's it's not only non-native; it's also invasive. Well, that's that's good to know. So there's two diseases that you kind of see in the media a lot. Um, one is Lyme disease. And that's the that's probably the bigger one that parents worry about. I feel like West Nile. Oh, sorry. I just spoiled it. <laughs> I was about to say, oh, my goodness. Tom actually knows what Paul was going to say. Oh, the, 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 the net has been removed. <laughs> Off of the off of the podcast. Um. So, <laughs> so well, I was just about to say, I feel like West Nile was more like early two thousands, kind of a thing, like two thousand four. The big the big scare was, but it's just been confirmed in Hamilton County again. I did, yeah. Which is pretty much that. confirmed like every year. Yeah. Um, if not in Hamilton County, at least close by. I think Lyme disease is one that, you know, especially parents, worry a little bit more about. You know, if their kids playing. You know, potentially in the backyard or in the woods. You're gonna make me and check you, my ears right now. You get these little ticks Ugh. that um, can carry Lyme disease. So that's one that I think parents worry a little bit more about. I do too. So, but there's a couple things that this Gross. is again one of those. Yes, be aware of it, be concerned, but don't worry, don't freak out about it. Um, for a couple reasons. One is it's carried by deer ticks, and deer ticks are not as prevalent in this area. We have far more dog ticks, which do not carry Lyme disease. And they're little horrible little nasties that you see them walking on you. And they've got the solicitory, like, going back in two. It looks like something from a horror movie. But they're all right. So, they're not going to give you... I mean, it's still not something you, you want embedding itself in you. But they're not going to spread Lyme disease. Yeah. So, number one, Lyme disease just is not common in this area. Um, number two is, say you were to get a deer tick on you. It was to embed itself in you. It can take 24 to 36 hours embedded in you before the spirochetes that cause Lyme disease is actually spread to you. So if you have one and it gets embedded and you find it, say, 12 hours later, no problem. It's only once it's been on you and feeding and, you know, hopefully by then you would you would find it. Um, deer ticks are tiny, though. I will say dog ticks are much larger. Deer ticks are pretty tiny. But again, it's just not that common Um, and there's two tests you can get and from what I understand you want to do both of them one has a high rate of false positives one has a high rate of false negatives so you Mm. really need to have them done in tandem to know for sure that makes sense Um, and there's some other symptoms but again it's something to concern yourself with after I go hiking I always check myself for ticks 
Yep. It's just that should just be a habit. Before you get in your car, check yourself from ticks. You know, when you get home and you take a shower, check yourself again for ticks. It's just a smart thing to do. Yeah. But it's no reason to not go in the woods. Um, now, if you're hiking in the Northeast, you should be a little bit more worried about it. Well, there's um, there's but, um there is a special kind of bug spray that you can get. Well, a chemical called permafrin, right? That goes on your clothes. I think that's a I think that is a, from what I've read, that's a good way of uh, helping prevent ticks. Because once the, I believe once the ticks go on the permafrin, it, it, it just knocks them right out. They, they, they don't, they don't like that. So I think, and, and what it is, is you put it on clothes and then you, you don't put it on your skin. You're not supposed to put it on your skin. Um, so if you wear it on your clothes, it should be a good repellent. And then you, DEET is the one that you put on your skin. Yeah. And the, uh, the other reason ticks have been, and Lyme disease have been in the news lately is because I guess the, the House of Representatives has, has kind of um, been asking questions of the Pentagon as to whether or not they weaponized and released ticks with Lyme disease. I could see that. No, I don't. I mean, it's like, I, you know, I enjoy a good, cons- I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist, but I do enjoy a good conspiracy theory. Um, but I find this one interesting that this one is, it's true that the House of Representatives was actually trying to force the Pentagon to say did you or did you not weaponize ticks and release them with Lyme disease so I, th- I think uh, well I, I, unfortunately um, I don't it's not something that I mean to talk about in a lot of these things but I mean if if you've got warmer weather and you've got more access to you know uh, you got milder winters there's gonna be more insects yeah and then absolutely. that's so so unfortunately there might be some other reasons to why those ideas are getting spread compared to because they're trying to downplay the other reasons right yeah well uh, so so and the the other disease so we've done three they're all hey guys um, how about we listen about diseases today (laughs) that's what you know what to be honest my wife read a whole book about diseases so i I don't know not really my thing but if that's what you want to do then (laughs) go right ahead good like the hot zone Oh, I hated that book. I hated it so much. It was so gross. <laughs> uh, so, so all three diseases we've talked, or that we will end up talking about, are all spread by bugs. So, and the last one is the West Nile virus, which I thought I had about ten years ago. You, you just what? thought though. Fifteen? What? You thought? I thought, yeah, because I heard it on the news, and I was, I heard about all the. Are and you I, a hypochondriac? I am. I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. So. I heard about it. Uh, I I I'm out a lot. I got bit by a lot of mosquitoes. I had a headache that night. I'm like, that was one of the symptoms. I think I've got. And I looked up like brains. What I was I was I was not a happy camper, Paul. <laughs> so West Nile is one that we heard a lot more about. You know, maybe ten years ago. And this is one that I mean, it did some damage. Like great horned owl populations really declined. And people on did their way get back sick. Up. People did get sick again. Like. I do not recommend going out and getting bit by 40 mosquitoes every day. It's <laughs> right. You know, and this is one that just this year again, it has been confirmed in Hamilton County, which it's pretty much confirmed just about every year. So it's not like, oh, it's back. It's kind of here all the time. Um, but according to the CDC, eight out of 10 people who get West Nile virus do not show symptoms. Yep. So you might, I don't know, I might have it. And I, I don't know it. So for, you know, a, 
a healthy immune system, um, you know, a healthy individual, it's not really something to worry about. If you have, you know, compromised immune systems or you've, you've been sick, you're, you know, um, you know, infants or older adults, it might be a, a little bit more of a concern. Um, but again, that's not something to worry about. It's, it's definitely not a reason to keep you outside. Like, yeah, if you, you, if, you, if you wear bug spray or if you just try and avoid damp, bo- I mean, I know it's Cincinnati, so that's saying a lot. But you know, just do your best. Like, just try and not get bit, and and you should be. I mean, I'm not saying it's never going to happen, but I just I I don't recommend being 16 year old me freaking out on WebMD, <laughs> whatever it was. Like, oh my goodness, I think I think I've got. I also thought I had that brain eating amoeba because I jumped into a lake and I like hit the bottom of the lake and all the sediment came up. And you heard about the brain eating amoeba, right? No, no, no. No. Oh yeah, there's a there's a brain eating amoeba where um, it sits at the bottom. It's more common in the southern states um, where the water's warmer. It's common in stagnant ponds, and it sits at the bottom of um, silted uh, ponds. So so say if a kid were to jump in and but like raise up all that silt, and then they were to breathe almost like drowning again, like snort up that water, and if that silted water gets into their sinuses. There's an amoeba that can travel up into your brain, and it's a hundred percent like you die within a week or two. So, again, I was 18, and I heard about this story, and because 18-year-olds like to jump in the ponds in the summertime, yep, I I, I didn't realize how shallow it is. That was a problem. I jumped into this lake, and I was thinking this is a you know eight-foot lake. It was like three foot deep, so I just hit the bottom of that pond, and I was I was a bit of a nervous wreck for about two weeks. Thinking I was gonna get this <laughs> disease. I've worried about the brain eating amoeba about four times throughout my life. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so, and that's kind of a thing, though. Like, as much as we say not to, sometimes if you're like me and you're a bit of a hypochondriac, then you're gonna worry about it, no matter what anybody says. Oh I've managed man. to. I de- you know, I'm a, I'm a naturalist, so I kind of have to deal with it. <laughs> so, well, I want to ask you this, because I gave mine already, and I asked Nikki, do you have a favorite, like, just ridiculous nature claim? Okay, so there was a story that I actually did a bit of a college report on, because I find it so... I'm not going to name who, uh, what organization wrote the story. It said... Scientists admit Hadron Collider can cause black holes that destroy the world. That was the title. And then, if you actually read the story, it said, Scientists do say that, you know, the colliding of these uh, atoms can possibly produce miniature black holes, but they won't get any bigger than the size of, you know, a, a few, like... You know, so minuscule that you wouldn't even be, unless you had that kind of technology, you wouldn't be able to measure it. And that, but then it said, but scientists don't know everything, so there is a possibility that it could destroy the world. So oh the title was their own inference. It, it, so it's a sandwich of wrong, correct, wrong. Yeah, it was <laughs> astounding. I did a whole. I was like, are you? What? <laughs> and and I did hear like there was I don't know if you remember that when when they were um, doing experiments looking look, um, looking for those uh, 
specific particles, there were there was a bit of a, a lot of fear about black holes. Um, that kind of reminds me. I've heard that when trains came out and they talk about trains going 35 miles per hour, some people were afraid to ride on them because they thought at that speed that bodies would just like shake apart. I have heard about that. Yeah. So it is interesting that all of this stuff. There's, Basically, there's nothing new under the sun. There's always going to be fear created by misinformation. Folks, that is our show for today. I hope we have maybe calmed some of your fears, gave you some insight on what to look before falling into the social media explosion of misinformation, and maybe given you some ammunition to blow up your friend's ridiculous posts on Facebook. If you ever have any nature-related questions, we love to answer them. You can post questions with hashtag Great Parks or post them on our Facebook page. Or better yet, visit one of our many nature centers and talk to an interpreter face-to-face. That is what we are here for. For more information on Shawnee Lookout, the rest of our parks, and information on our upcoming programs and events, head over to greatparks.org. Thank you, Nikki, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And of course, thank you, listener, for joining us today on Take It Outdoors, a podcast where you can enjoy the outdoors from the indoors. Check back next month for our next episode. And until then, I'm Paul Sievers. Get outside. Enjoy nature.